My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Hello and welcome back to the KingCast. My name is Scott Wampler. I'm the managing editor at Birth Movies Death and I am also your host. I am joined as always by my devastatingly handsome, quick-witted, well-researched, well-read co-host, Mr. Eric Vespi. Eric, say hello. Hi, that's me. I was going to yes. try to come up with like something, you know, really awkward and, and quippy about being uh, well researched and well read. And uh, and then I froze up. I'm going to keep adding to the descriptors as we go on. Eventually, we're going to have episodes that are like four hours long because I'm going to be <laughs> going through every word in the book. But um, uh, as you should, I think that's in our contract. Every new episode has yeah, to have one is. more positive thing to say about me. <laughs> well, maybe they won't all be positive. You know, let's not get ahead of ourselves. But let's get to the show. Today's guest is... Quite frankly, a full-blown boss. She is the award-winning director of Jennifer's Body, Girl, Fri- Girl Fight. God, I Girl Fright. that. Girl Fright. Destroyer. <laughs> and, uh, and my personal favorite, 2015's The Invitation. She will next helm a new version of Dracula for the good folks at Blumhouse. Folks, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Miss Karen Kusama. Hi, guys. It's How nice are you to doing? be here. How are you doing today? I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm very I'm, excited. Yeah. For you to be here, um, you, I, uh, you and I have. Uh, I, I've never uh, had the pleasure of interviewing you or anything, but I am a huge raving fan of the invitation. So oh, this is this is a special treat for me. Now uh, we'll get to the adaptation you chose in just a minute, but usually we kick off the show with uh, a discussion of your your King origin story. Um, mm. How did Stephen King come into your life? Like, what did you see, read first? I read. Um... A, a, a beat up paperback version of The Shining that was on my parents' bookshelf. And I was often like as a kid taking, taking books off their bookshelf and, and sort of secretly reading them. So like, that's the way I read The Exorcist. It's how I read The Painted Bird. It's how I read Fear of Flying, you know, like all of these like paperback versions. And I don't know if you remember The Shining paperback. There was a version of it that was like in this like completely silver. Yes. um, Yeah. So so that one with this kind of like elongated um, like face of agony. um, I read that book in probably like three sittings as a kid. Yeah. Now, how um, old do you think you were when, when you did this? I was probably like 10. Mm-hmm. So this was 19 or maybe I was nine. I, I'm like, I, I, when was the book published? The shining like 78, I believe. Yeah, so I was 10 years old. I was 10 years old. Um, and it was like, they had obviously read it, thumbed through it, put it back on the shelf. So it was like a worn copy. So maybe I was 11. It was 79 or something, but Would it was they not um, a, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, they I just think they wouldn't have assumed that I would want to read that because I was also reading, you know, Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and Laura Ingalls Kitchen, you know, like that kind of stuff. So this was my um the birth, I think. Actually, it was these paperback horror novels that were sort of my the birth, I think, of my initial interest interest in in horror generally. Um but that I have a very vivid memory of reading that book. Do you think they would have cared if you were reading it at that age? 
Um, I think The Shining would have felt a little bit more just like a mountain to climb because it was a really long book. Um, mm-hmm. I think they would have been more disturbed by me reading The Exorcist. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So, and The Painted Bird, the Jersey Kosinski book. Um, but yeah, I think I think they would have just been like, "Do you really want to tackle this really thick paperback?" You know. But I did, and and uh, you know, was haunted forever. Yeah, like pre pre Harry Potter, like that that seemed to be the unless you were in a super religious household, that seemed to be the uh, the thought is like, well, if they want to pick up Pet Cemetery and and read a a three hundred page book, then at least they're reading. You know? Exactly. Oh, exactly. And and then now that I think about it, it's like I remember Cujo on the bookshelf. Right. Um, trying to remember, I feel like there were. It, it's almost like he's written so many books that it's kind of an incomprehensible thing to see it all together, you know, right. like as, as a resume. Um, but I, I bet you there were, were tons more Stephen King books on the shelf. I just, one forgets that they are just part of our, they're so much a part of our cultural lexicon now that we, we sort of forget what, what he's accomplished in his career. Was your mom the King reader or your dad or both of them? I, I think it was probably they both, took a crack at him. Um, it's funny though. I think my, my memory is that they were much more sort of quote serious readers, hence the like Kozinski on the, right. on the bookshelf. But they, that the, when I, when I, my memories of those books are, have an equally kind of pulpy pop sensibility to them. So, um, I don't, I, I'm sure it was also just like what everyone around them was reading. So, you know, yeah, you got to pay the four ninety nine and get the paperback version. It's it's kind of um, interesting to think about now because Stephen King is such, you know, just ingrained in in terms of like everybody knows him. He is a name that exists just like Star Wars, right? Yep, yep. It's just something that exists. But when you think about that time, especially for The Shining, like that was the one where it was just blasted everywhere. You like yes. you couldn't pa- walk past a book store that didn't have a a display in the window you know that kind of thing it was just the most popular thing in the world and you know and i think that hel- it helped that king himself was like going on uh you know doing talk shows and stuff mm-hmm. i found like a, a talk show he did in like 1980 where it's like him smoking cigarettes with uh peter straub and and uh, uh george romero and and um uh oh what's his name the uh ira levin who wrote uh mm-hmm. rosemary's baby wow. it's like yeah there was like this just this this like hour-long thing you can find it on youtube with you know them just sitting in their most like 70s looking Flat. you know yeah. suits like they were like brand new in like 1976 and this is like 1980 so they're getting mm-hmm. a little ratty but you mm-hmm. know they they're like 80 percent collar you know that's mm-hmm. <laughs> uh you know but he you know he was you know out there and and um becoming the face of so he built a brand and he yeah. It was kind of like when Lost came out, you know, you were missing out on something in pop culture if you weren't mm-hmm. keeping up with it. That's what the conversation was. Yeah, totally. so, true. so true. Now, uh, which uh, tell us about the adaptation that you've you've brought to us today. What'd you pick? Oh, well, I, did, I chose Carrie um, because for me, Carrie is sort of a foundational, not just horror movie, just a foundational movie. Um mm-hmm. And I think it has a, a welcome female point of view that that actually uh, is quite certainly in the in the in the film version um, 
is quite vividly brought brought to life. And um, I just love the idea that audiences got to like root for this shy, strange girl um, with very special powers. You know, totally. It's it's iconic. You know, the oh, image yeah. of of Sissy Spacek up there on the stage with the blood on her and oh god, um, it's so true. It's funny because I like in in seeing the movie again recently, I was just struck by that image. Like we. It, you 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 almost can't overestimate what that right. Im- what that image means now, and it it's um it's just so deeply powerful. I've seen photos of that. I've seen this movie several times. I've seen photos from that scene all over the place. But still, rewatching it this morning when the fire goes up behind her, mm-hmm. it's just I got got goosebumps. It's oh. just there's something elemental about it. You know, it's, totally. It's when she starts walking just like walking off the stage once the destruction is just in like full flower. It is just like, I literally screamed out this last time. Yes. (laughs) I just, because it's so, it, it, it fulfills so many, um, so many fantasies and, and, and the irony or not the irony, but I guess the, the thing that makes it so special is that horror audiences that we so frequently imagine are are somehow more men than women though i i highly doubt that that's actually true the the sense that all all viewers get to participate in this transgressive moment of of this character feeling her awesome and and deeply destructive power it's it's just um cathartic it's true it's yeah and it is and it is cathartic and it is almost like mythological you know yeah, I agree. It's, fu- it's funny you mentioned that because in doing some, my research on um, like what the impact of this was when it came out, uh, of the movie in particular, was the uh, – I came across two stories and I'd really love to actually dive deeper into this. Um, but uh, I found two stories of the first times that both the writer uh, Lawrence Cohen and Stephen King – himself saw the movie mm. they saw uh, they saw it uh, in a preview where it was the second part of a double bill and the very first movie uh was a film called sparkle oh yeah which, i remember sparkle yeah which is kind of like dream girls you know mm-hmm. back back in the the day curtis mayfield did the mm-hmm. the score and it was like kind of like a you know a set in the the motown ish rock and roll mm-hmm. you know scene um, and so when both men saw it, they saw it on different coasts. King was on the East coast and, uh, Cohen was on the West coast and they both saw it with uh, predominantly black audiences. It was mm. like 90%, uh, black audiences and both were like, well, you know, are they going to give a shit about this movie about this, you know, skinny little white girl, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and relate to it. And they said that that's kind of both, they both knew, uh, at that moment when they saw those those screenings that that the movie worked because it worked for them and not not only did those audiences love it they were like laughing and screaming and you know it's like they were so invested and into it mm. um and so like it really makes me wonder like how much of the success of Carrie which uh the film which then translates into the success of of Stephen King the author Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is kind of owed to black audiences. You know, that mm. that's something I haven't seen anybody really diving into because, you know, King himself, I mean, listen, King's a great writer. He was getting published. He had the stories. He was going to break, you know, no matter what. Right. Um, but, you know, the movie put him on a rocket ship. 
to stardom uh, as a, you know, a name. And uh, I mean, he's even, I think his quote is the movie made the book and the book made me. Mm. Um, And, and he, you know, he said many times that without De Palma's carry, there wouldn't, you know, there wouldn't have been as quick of of an uh, ascension um, Mm. as he had. That's so fascinating because it also, I mean, the, what makes the movie so particular and special is this, the idea of the most vulnerable, the most terrorized, mm. the most neglected character you could imagine. I mean, just the opening scene of her her being humiliated and screamed at and mocked for her lack of knowledge about her body, It it's so uh, deeply cruel. And it mm. says so much about sort of, basically to me, it just says so much about who America kind of is and was and always has been in some way. And, and the fact that the audience gets carried along with her toward this revenge, but also this just terrible kind of outpouring of power that comes from this repressed rage and this, this intensely sad desire to belong I mean, it just, it's, who, who, who couldn't identify with that in a way? Like, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's the Nancy Allen and the John Travolta characters that you wonder, what did they think of Carrie? You know, like Mm -hmm. those kinds of people in our high school memories, did they get Carrie or, or, or is that the beauty of it? Does everybody in some weird way root for Carrie? Uh, in, is that the is that the brilliance of it? You in know, my that, experience, those kind of people never see themselves as they are. Yeah. Um. So I I would hazard a guess that the people the real you know John Travolta's and PJ Souls mm-hmm. and you know Edie McClurg's yep. and Nancy yep. Allen's of the world they didn't recognize that that's who they were to somebody in in high school. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's such a powerful depiction of of teenage cruelty, you know, just, and, and that scene, even I was, I forgot completely about the scene between Nancy Allen and John Travolta where he's driving and he keeps just like slapping her across the face. Yeah. And, and she keeps, she keeps sort of bouncing back from it. And, and, and it's just so, it's just such a mind fuck if you think about it like that, that it, it was so kind of before there was a, 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 a national or cultural conversation about what it means to, to hit your partner like right. that. And, and just the fact that they were so cruel to each other, it, it's just a very complicated portrait of um, humanity at its worst. It's a great Absolutely. example of a, of like a toxic relationship because these are two people who, who, you know, who in a weird way, like fit each other, you know, she, totally. she is so abusive to him and he is so, you know, he, she's constantly cutting him down and, you know, making him feel like shit and then using sex to get what she wants. Yeah. She's a very manipulative person. And then he's this, you know, kind of dumb id, you mm. know, yeah. he's yeah. a walking boner, essentially this, you know, this character and uh, it, you know, which is funny because that's pretty much all the male characters in the movie. Like it's like you said, it's a very, uh, female forward film um like all the the male characters are 
you know, are kind of these, you know, dummy, you know, people who will do, you know, it's do funny, do, though, do because Tommy, I, I, I was struck this time by the fact that Tommy Ross, it's like, I just feel like I knew this guy. And didn't we all kind of know a version of this guy where everything has come very easily Easy. to him. Yeah. But in the end, the expectation is that he's he's going to be cruel and that he's some sort of ultimately kind of shallow soul. But in the end, I think you really see that there's kindness there. You really, I, I, like I actually thought, and maybe that's fulfilling a fantasy of my own, but mm-hmm. I, on behalf of Carrie, but I actually believed that there was a part of him that was kind. And, I, you know, like I, I, I think there's something kind of interesting about the depiction of Tommy and Sue Snell that mm. they that they were the characters that you just imagined if they could just get out of this town right and and they might become really same as Carrie interesting people um and I don't know that spoke to me so much too those characters I think, I think they're kind at heart but I know what you mean in the sense that if you know, success comes very easily, you mm-hmm. know, this, this idea that you're sort of being handed things. And I think that people like Tommy and Sue, um, though kind hearted, if they were to gain too much success, I can imagine that souring somehow. Oh, for sure. You know, and, for sure. and for, to, to go back to, um, you know, Chris and, and Bobby's relationship, you know, uh, not only is, you know, that scene with him hitting her in the car sort of instructive to the the power dynamic of that relationship. But it also speaks to the cycles of abuse because, oh. you know, they're then passing it down to Carrie. Oh, you know, for sure. it's, it's really well handled. Oh, but yeah. um, before we go on, I think we should wind back a little bit to mm-hmm. the book. The uh, this this book is, a, a you know, the key moment in in Stephen King's career. And 100 um, percent. Eric, do you want to you want to take the reins on this part? Or you, yeah, you I, I have I have some stuff uh, here that's you know I think pretty interesting. Um, uh, I'm going to ask you guys: Do you like how popular do you think this book was? Like when you think on this being the launching point for King, like how popular? And if you've done the research, God, you need to shut up. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, but like you know, it and it's it had a hardcover run. Uh, but, you know, in your mind, do you f- see that as being everywhere? Or do you see it as being like a smaller thing? Like, like, uh, you know, Karin, do you do you have a, hmm. a thought on that? It's hard for me. It's like, even today, I don't know what constitutes a popular <laughs> yeah, book, right. in, you know, quote, in sales. So right. I think you're going to have to tell me you're going to have to surprise me. Well, the, the hardcover um, only had a 5000 print run, um, oh. which was a huge deal for King, you know, because this was his first uh, published novel. Um, but uh, uh, the paperback, though, came out after the movie and and uh, that mo- that sold four million copies. Wow. The paperback sold four million, which goes back to what King was saying, how he feels like he owes his career to De Palma mm-hmm. because it was people reading, uh, choosing to pick up the paperback after the film came out that like really launched him as an author. Like that's what gave him his readership that he then, you know took the ball and ran with, you know, with uh, Salem's lot and the shining, which I, if I'm not mistaken, I think the shining was his first uh, book that like, like was hitting bestseller lists and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So, um, you know, 
But at the same time, like, and I don't want to, you know, Stephen King probably knows better than I do. But I, I have a different interpretation of that that situation because, no. you know, he was orig- he, look, he was originally writing this as a short story. He got three, four pages in, decided he didn't like it, threw it in the trash. And his, his wife, Tabitha, rescued it from the trash, read it, and convinced him to keep going. And furthermore, she, she helped him flesh it out into a novel. The sale on that book was immediately followed a month later by the paperback sales. And that's where they essentially became rich overnight. And so I think from another perspective, Tabitha is is at least as equally uh, responsible for oh, yeah. for what happened than, yeah, well, than without her, Well, yeah. I mean, without her, there, there wouldn't be a book. So, of course, <laughs> you know, she, uh, uh, you know, gets to jump ahead the line in front of uh, Brian De Palma. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that, that's all very interesting because he he was the the short stories he was selling uh to make a living um at at the this time like he was a teacher he was working summers at a laundry press which is where the mangler you know story comes in later um you know that was his inspiration there but like he was making his ends meet as a teacher which would barely paid enough to keep the lights on um and so you know it was him selling these short stories to these men's magazines that was like keeping their heads above water that would allow them, you know, these extra unexpected expenses, like, you know, paying for medicine for their kids or catching up on a bill. Um, and so one, one of his writer friends had told him that, that um, every one of these, that he's, these stories that he's writing are all like macho stories because they're for men's magazines. And he kind of challenged him to write one from a female perspective. And that's when he's like, okay, well I see as a teacher, I see, you know, the cruelty of kids every day. Um, you know, I see what they do to their classmates, you know, I deal with it directly. And he's like, and I, he, I think at this point he was what in his mid twenties. So he 26. wasn't, well, he, he, that was when it was published, but that was when it was published. I think he, I think he said he finished his first draft at 22. Good so Lord. So he, you know, he wasn't that far out of high school either. So he w- had that, that great, um, ability to write this book from the perspective of somebody who still remembers what it felt like being there and seeing it from the other side, the teacher side, you know, where it's more of a, you know, God's eye view of the cruelty, you know, instead of actually being inside of it. Um, so yeah, no, that's exactly right. He did the, he started writing it, didn't feel like he was writing the female characters up to snuff and, and, uh, threw it away. Tabby, uh, saved it and, and helped him every time there was a, a problem. Um, but I mean, a lot of the, the structure of the book is um, you still see the short story that it was because it, it was still it's not a very long book as it is. But they he intersperses it with these this investigation into what happened. Right. So like it'll be the story and then there'll be like four or five pages of you know, the survivors of, of that night, you know, being interviewed or these, you know, arguing, you know, scientists debating on whether or not, you know, telekinesis is real and that, that kind of thing. Like these reading these, these papers and newspaper stories and stuff. Um, and that was all to fill it out, to make it a novel length, which, which in a very weird way, as a big Stephen King fan, you know, you notice that in all of his, uh, uh, his work, he, he, he is an author that I haven't seen this many people do this, but um, that I've read, but like what he does all the time is he hints at what's about to happen, 
right? He sets up a sense of dread. So he'll be like, and then, you know, Danny Torrance is, is playing in, you know, in, in his room and, you know, and little did he know, you know, the next day you right, see right. a ghost, you know, that kind of thing he would do, you know, that, that was that's the a, last time he saw him alive. Yeah. He does I that mean, a lot. K- yeah. King does that all the time. And I, I really feel like Carrie kind of sets that, that precedent up because that's what he's doing every single, I say every like 10, 15 pages, there's a new break that goes, you know, yep. And then, you know, here's somebody interviewed that talks about, you know, all the devastation and, and the death they saw. And you know that it's building to this, this, uh, um, you know, this big explosive uh, climax. I read an interview with him where he was talking about, uh, you know, from his perspective, it's, it's, she, you know, Carrie is Samson pulling down the temple, mm. you know, her own temple. And that's a really good way of putting it. Yeah. I had, I have a, well, I, when I, I rewatched this uh, with my wife and we got into a discussion about this and I'm curious to hear uh, Karin's perspective on it. But my wife was saying she loves Carrie. Um, she loves the movie. She hasn't read the book. Uh, and is after this revisit, she's like, I, I think I'm going to read the book now. Um, she only, she's kind of a late comer to King. Mostly after, after we got married, she, she started getting into King. But uh, um, You're a bad influence is what you're saying. <laughs> well, she had a bad experience early on. Um, she read. She started uh, with the Tommyknockers? <laughs> I don't know. I was trying to determine when we were talking today, like which one it was she started with. And she just couldn't remember. But she read one of his books when she was a teenager. And she was, read, she was raised in a very um, strict household, a very religious household. Um, there was certainly, you know, no swearing and they were very, you know, uh, protective of her. And so she read a King novel and was just mortified by all the bad Mm -hmm. language and, and violence of it. And it just turned her right off of, off of King. And she is, I, I'm sorry to tell you this, Eric, uh, she was a big Koontz fan back in the day, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's all right. Nobody's perfect. True. (laughs) Um, but she was saying that as much as she enjoys the book, and or enjoys the movie and and feels that it's successful she she was saying she kind of wishes that a woman had written it and and do you have any feelings on that like do you does it make a difference to you if it's if it resonates does it matter i guess is my question i think when it resonates it's a window into all of our capacity to have empathy and to think from another point of view. And to me, the great victory of the movie is that it is such a female point of view. Like I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't believe I'm looking at an interpretation of a a young woman's inner life from a perspective that isn't female. And so Mm -hmm. For me, you know, look, when when King's camera is in glorious slow-mo, just tracking through a locker room and we're watching a bunch of naked girls, of course I'm aware that they're naked, but I'm also aware that they're like, I'm aware of the swagger and the power in their nakedness and the power in their their femaleness together that to me feels akin to a locker room filled with filled with boys like i guess to me the movie has the complexity of um 
I just, I just want to say these, these like hopeful currents that run through it that are actually giving us access to female experience. And so for me, I, I guess I see it as like a, a kind of thrilling openness on the part of the writer and director to put themselves in the psyche of this tortured girl. And I guess that to me says that this is where, where gender questions and, 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 and our sort of hope for more representation gets a little murky because to me, this is actually a great representation of a female character as imagined by a male writer and a male director. Wow. That was a good answer. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I'm always hoping to see, you know, some of my favorite movies have to be movies directed, but most of them end up being movies directed by men because that's simply the, that's what was available and has been available for so long. And so if I'm going to see a touch point of, of deep empathy, almost uncanny willingness to go into the heart of like, of the female consciousness, I I just have to take my hat off and say, (laughs) I respect that effort when it's successful. You know, I I mean, I I have a lot to say when it's not successful. And I think, (laughs) and, and, and don't get me wrong. I think it's, um, it's just so easy for us to misunderstand and misrepresent people. That's just part of the the trial of storytelling. And so to just have, I mean, I don't know, personally, the movie has such a, a sort of um, florid, like sensuousness that it's like, to me, it's like the female in De Palma directed that movie, you know? Yeah, it, it is a very erotic movie i mean the just from how it's shot you know it's got that that haze filter on it throughout the whole thing that opening shower scene you know like you said it's not lascivious at all until you get to carry and that and that's what the least amount of nudity that that you see it's like then it becomes you know uh you're seeing bits of body parts and you're seeing Mm -hmm. her clean herself and you know that of course ends with the reveal of the blood and her having her her first period and all that. But yeah, I mean, it, down to um, Margaret White's death, which is mm. done orgasmically. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it has a very weird uh, erotic undercurrent, the, the entire, uh, the entire thing. Yeah, well, there's, that's, that's your boy, De Palma, you know, like that's, no. the, 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 yeah. <laughs> that guy, that guy's a, a boy scout. I was, <laughs> you know, something that, look, I, I, I think I mentioned earlier or, or pre-show that, I hadn't seen this movie in probably 20 years or more. And mm-hmm. on rewatch, what I was struck by was how much De Palma is in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I just didn't remember it that way. I remembered this as, and I'm, bar- uh, I'm, I'm sort of embarrassed to say it, but I, I almost remembered it as like sort of a for hire thing. You know, like it, I don't, I didn't remember it having his particular stamp on it, but it's all over this movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, just. I mean, more so than I, I mean, Phantom of the Paradise is like has his sense of humor more than this film does. But this film does have his 
uh, a, a quite of like a random like tone shift in mm-hmm. it. Like, and that that was something that struck me in my most recent rewatch because, like, when you watch this as as a kid, you know, movies can do anything. There are no rules, right? So you you're not really thrown for a loop when a movie does something. Um, and you know, but like, I can't imagine a movie being made today where they do that weird like bouncy we're going to the prom you know getting fitted for Mm -hmm. tuxes you know music that they're doing and then like he even like puts in a fast forward sound effect and just fast forwards like through some of the the ribbing that the guys do with each other and it's like like that is that's something you would see in a spoof movie right but you would never see it in a for real movie now it's an Um, odd moment that that fast forward and and then that like happened right you know within what five or ten minutes of the prom scene yeah itself which you know and we talk about we've talked about the importance of that scene a little bit but i i I think that we should probably focus on that just as it's almost a short film in and of itself the Mm -hmm. uh the second that he goes split screen like Mm -hmm. it's like the air is electric Right. Oh, it's yeah. just the him, you know, using the uh, kind of ripping off the Bernard Herman mm-hmm. um, psycho, you know, string cues and the the lighting going, you know, full red. And, you know, uh, uh, Sissy SpaceX eyes are just like wide in these huge windows of anger and, you know, uh, determination and power like that whole sequence um, and how he uses the split screen is is a masterclass. And I think that sequence more than, you know, uh, the, uh, the rest of the movies and, you know, fantastic. And we'll talk about Piper Laurie and what she brings to it. Um, but that sequence by itself, that's, that's the thing that people think of when they think of Carrie, that's the thing that, you know, people probably had in their mind whenever they pictured Stephen King, you know, up until maybe the shining or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, later, like that, that was the key image. Um, and, uh, it's really incredible to me that, uh, and it shows how great a, of a director De Palma is in being able to handle that tone shift from that goofy bouncy, right. you know, let's go shopping for tuxes scene. Um, uh, and moving directly from that into like one of the most skin crawling, you know, um, uh, moments. Is that the first sequence you think of when you think of this movie, Karen? It's funny. I actually think, um, I think more about Piper Laurie in her scenes with, with Carrie Mm -hmm. only because that performance was so specifically um, kind of, and the engine of it is this sexual repression that is so intense that it, it's just oozes out of every, every pore of her body. But I mean, I do think that that prom sequence is iconic in so many ways and it is true that there's a kind of technical willingness from De Palma to be just sort of firing on all cylinders, trying a bunch of things, really, you know, quite literally kind of wanting to be awe-inspiring, you know? And that's that yeah. sort of, that's the quality of like, you know, Medusa walking through the school gym. I mean, it's just... There's moment, there are cuts in the in that scene that are so, so powerful. You know, even the idea that we haven't really seen Carrie full body until we cut to that first moment that she starts walking off the stage and just through the mayhem that she's created. It's so it just gives you shivers, you know, like and that I think it 
it's like my memory of Carrie was always about that mom relationship and, and what does it mean to feel like maybe your parent doesn't want you on a most fundamental level, but also, um, might actually kill you. I I think, (laughs) I think that that kind of like terror is so profound that it then gives, it's sort of the emotional and underpinning to then this like sort of incredible technical achievement that De Palma has with that final sequence in the prom. Um, And I just want to go back and say that like, when you were talking about the De Palma-ness of the movie, I reread, I, I, I remember reading when I was on a huge Pauline Kael kick where I was just reading every review she had ever written. I remembered her review of Carrie being kind of rhapsodic. And I went back to it to read it again last night and was so struck by how she had nailed sort of not just what De Palma was doing, but also what kind of pleasure it brings. Because she said, you know, there's, there's scary and scary, there's funny and funny, but scary and funny might be the most potent combination in cinema. And that is scary, you know, like that, that you can both laugh at in this kind of horrible way. And even sometimes just sort of laugh at the floridness of the filmmaking. It's like De Palma gives you permission to say like, whoa, dude, that's a little over the top, you know? And then he just, in giving you that permission, he just goes for the jugular. And I just think there's something about that um, definition of De Palma's sensibility that is actually like a really important reminder of what it was that he was doing, which was these incredible experiments in tone, Um, so he, you know, so he was willing to have Piper Laurie's character kind of be ridiculous when she goes to see Sue Snell's mother. But then the minute Sue Snell's mom says, here's $5, no $10. (laughs) And you see Piper Laurie crawl back into herself. It, you're just like, this is going to be such a scary movie. (laughs) you know. So so it's like, I, I do think there's something too, just about the De Palma signature blend of asking the audience to kind of be in on the joke with him and then just sort of pulling it all out from under us. That's De Palma at his best, in my opinion. I, uh, I agree with you about like, I I agree that uh, the, the prom sequence is the centerpiece of the movie and, and the images from that are the most iconic, but but I agree with with Karen that the the thing I always think about in connection to Carrie is is her and her mom, and and specifically the scene where she comes home, and she you know the school calls tells the the mother that she you know there was an incident at school and that uh, Carrie had had her uh, period, mm-hmm. and she just like Carrie just wants to she wants to be comforted by somebody, and her mom ends up you know preaching to her and hitting her with a book. And to me, that's, that's the first thing that comes into my mind, the cruelty of that. And like Mm -hmm. the, the realization that this, this character, this, this poor young woman had nowhere to turn, you know, like even, even going home, like her mother wasn't even going to give her an inch. And that I think is the scariest thing in the movie. Um, Well, and frankly, I mean, what I think is so fascinating is to watch that movie today and to be thinking about, you know, 
Trump calling every church a, 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 an essential place to be, <laughs> right. and and this idea of um, just ultimately this this kind of death cult that right. that you could you could interpret Piper Laurie's version or interpretation of her faith as as so unforgiving that there is no room to actually live a human life. Right. And, and it's kind of like, we're right, we're right there. It's not like we ever left. It's not like this is an antiquated way of looking at the world. We're still there. And, and that's really fascinating to me. I mean, it's deeply sad and disturbing too, but I mean, I, I was, I was really struck with the, 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 inflexibility in Piper Laurie's character and how it only led to death and destruction. Well, I mean, what you said is exactly how Piper Laurie viewed her character too, because as originally scripted when she died at the end, um, we talked about a little bit how it's played as orgasmically now, Mm -hmm. Um, but the scripted version was more typical, you know, writhing in pain and agony. And Piper Laurie went to De Palma and was just like, listen, Margaret White wants this. Like this yeah. is her gateway to meet, you know, her savior. She believes that she's going to Jesus now. So it's like, I'm, you know, I want to play this, you know, as a happy moment for her. And that's why she plays it the way she does. And it's so much creepier than if she was just screaming, you know, obviously they, you know, I, I think in the book, Carrie just like stops her heart, but in the, in the, um in the movie, you know, they went full on. De Palma um, with it. <laughs> it went yeah. De Palma, but you know, uh, you know, it, it's, it's great because they, you know, she's crucified, right? And they, mm-hmm. they give her her own, you know, crucifixion with kitchen implements. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it, it's still the second, you know, creepiest crucifixion we see in the movie. Cause that, uh, that oh. Jesus glowy eyed oh, Jesus doll and with the, and the, the closet eyes. He has Google yeah, eyes. Which is the that glow. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, where's that glow coming light, from? Right? It's like, that's the thing. I hope so, because otherwise, I think, yeah, I think <laughs> that, it's just there to terrify you. I was I was looking at it very closely this time because I was you know remarking to my wife that like Jesus has googly eyes, but you can <laughs> well, see as, like as little, he did. Haven't you read the Bible? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm behind on my reading of the Bible, but uh, you can see like a little glow coming out from behind the head, and that's the only thing that would cause it to have a, a illumination would be like a light bulb in that head mm-hmm. with, you know, mm-hmm. window eyes. Or, or I guess the spirit uh, of Christ. Yeah. I guess the production designer, they went out and like went through a bunch of thrift, thrift stores and, and uh, antique shops and stuff like that. And picked out a bunch of just like weird religious iconography, you know, mm-hmm. tchotchkes that they could throw in there. And which leads me to another point, which is, this is one of my favorite topics about Stephen King is Stephen King's relationship with religion, which is once again presented here as um, ultimately bad. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we see examples of this in what was the other one we were talking about where this came up? Oh, Silver Bullet. Uh, Silver Bullet. Yeah. Yeah. This is and this is his first book. So it's quite literally been there uh, from the beginning. I just make I'm just mentioning that in case any of our listeners are doing a tally sheet for, uh, you know. Yeah, King problematic uh, organized religion in, yeah. in King stories. Yeah. Well, religion is, and I think this is why um, 
I tend to think of that moment with Carrie and her mother as the scariest in the movie and, and why it's the first thing I think of when I think of this movie is because religion does scare the shit out of me. I'm not a religious person. And, uh, I think that I think people's faith is really important and that, uh, most people are fine with it, but I, but also you see it perverted so frequently across history that it's, it's, you know, it's a formidable, formidable force. And, um, well, and it's worth, it's worth having a, a, an active, honest conversation about most world religions and their relationship to girls and women. Mm-hmm. And, and almost, and control almost yeah. always it's about social control. It's about, uh, monitoring and, and controlling and ultimately denying any kind of sexual power or pleasure it's it's a it's it's an expression of such deep terror that it's very hard for me not to feel like most religions are bound to be perverted in the way that you were just saying i'm and and so what makes carrie still so potent is that all of this boils down to the fact that you know, little Carrie is a quote woman now because she started her period. And it's as if, I mean, really that's the, that's the inciting incident for all of this destruction. It's almost as Mm -hmm. if the notion that Carrie be her own self-determining person with her own desires, her own consciousness, her own intellect, it was as if that wasn't going to be possible for her. And the only other choice is is complete annihilation. And I just think for so many women and girls and for so many men who are sort of like, you know, in the parlance of today, our feminist allies, they recognize that there's some kernel of truth to this. And mm-hmm. and that's terif- that's terrifying. Like what kind of world can we really sustain if this is how we look at our girls and women? You know, it's, it's so terrifying. It's so it's the basis of the horror. The religion is literally to me, the kernel of it all. Yeah. The fanaticism. I'm just absorbing what you just said. (laughs) It's really good. You're you're (laughs) elevating our our show, which is mostly us uh, making goofs and talking about awkward Stephen King sex scenes. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's funny. That's yeah. (laughs) It's like, you're, you're actually making us think about shit now. Yeah. (laughs) Way well, to go. We're going to have to spike this whole episode now. <laughs> that's well, that's the aim, guys. That's the aim. <laughs> uh, I, I would like to talk a little bit about um, Sissy Spacek in, in this oh. part. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, this is like her big breakout, and she was nominated for this performance, which um, wow. she, she was nominated. I did not know that. Yeah, both yeah. her and, and Piper Laurie were nominated, uh, which which was huge because uh, up until this point, I think maybe only Ellen Burstyn for The Exorcist had ever had there been not only, you know, a, a woman nominated for a genre a film like film. this, a horror film, but, mm-hmm. uh, you know, any horror film period. And it wouldn't be until uh, Silence of the Lambs and Jodie Foster, you know, and that swept that that would happen again. So, I mean, this, you know, this movie isn't just successful, which it was. It was made for under $2 million and made over like, I think, 33 or 34 million. 
uh, in its time, it spawned a ridiculous amount of reboots and sequels. There are way more Carrie movies than you than you probably know mm-hmm. know exist. Um, I think it's probably only outdone by uh, the Ch- Children of the Corn films and King's <laughs> lexicon of of all the random direct to video and you know TV movie versions of this that have been done. But what's fascinating to me about um, Sissy Spacek here is how she plays the character, um, which is a little bit of a departure from the book. The book, she's she's a little she's way more weird, right? Like in the book, she's described as being chubby and you know having zits and you know being way more of an outcast. And she's she, she's played a, at least at the beginning, she's played a little bit more dumb. Uh, in the book where it's not naive and that's what she brings to it. She brings like a, she, she's an innocent and she's a kind hearted person, which makes it all the more terrible when she's being bullied. Um, and I think puts you more on her side whenever, that's uh, an interesting point. whenever she, uh, yeah, whenever she, uh, uh, you know, has her full on rage out and it's just like, fine, you know, screw everybody. But, you know, I, I don't think we can say enough about, you know, what she brings to the role. And I, I also don't think we can say enough about the decision to when she goes crazy, uh, you know, at the end when everything goes, you know, she's pushed to her brink and it's just, you know, she kind of flips off and whatever this, you know, her powers are, you know, take control the decision in the movie to take out the good people and the bad, right? The, the, Mm -hmm. the PE, you know, teacher that uh, Betty Buckley plays, you know, that has been her support the whole time. She doesn't make it out of that, that thing alive, you know, just as much as all the people that have been making fun of her the whole time, you know, it's, it's a really interesting choice. And, and I, again, you know, forgive me, it's been a while since I've read the book, but I, I seem to, I think the, the, the teacher escapes in the book. And so it's like in the book, it's a little bit more, the good people live and the bad people die, you know, but, but here I just kind of like the chaos of, you know, of somebody pushed to this point, you know? Um, and, and, you know, this is a very long winded way of me saying that Sissy Spacek really sells it. And, and she's, you know, the most empathetic, you know, you can, you can sympathize with this character from, from frame one. Totally. My- and, and, Oh, go ahead. No, 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 you please. Well, I was just going to say that like, what this movie represents is like one of my favorite genres in, in horror, but also just in movies where essentially the protagonist and the antagonist are the same Mm. because she, in that moment in the prom, when it's just so merciless and when you realize that this is, this is what we get when we push a person to the brink and and it's it's horrifying and it's without ethics it's completely um just this like amoral spray of destruction right. um and there's a, an incredible sadism to the way that she utilizes her powers and so then it becomes impossible to simply empathize with her and we have to sort of recognize how villains are born and mm. and where they come from i just think that's so interesting that they had made a choice to to both give her this power that on an audience level is super satisfying and you kind of want to see her get her revenge but then not let the audience get away with feeling like there's a kind of revenge that ultimately works in the end mm. because in the end everyone's a victim you know even sue snell who survives is going to be damaged and terrorized forever by what's happened. And, and so I, I kind of love that 
that sense that um, no one wins when when we're given our fantasy to 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 sort of just wreak havoc. In, in yeah. the end, every everyone kind of suffers. My my wife pointed that out while we were while we were watching this. That the good people are dying as <laughs> as as often as the bad ones. And my my interpretation of that was just that you know to carry. Um, it probably felt like they should have done more to stop yeah. the uh, the abuse that she was getting from like, like there's a teacher. I, I don't know the actor's name, um, but the teacher that's like reading oh. Tommy's poem in the class, totally. you know, like he's, you kind of like the guy, he's kind of goofy, but also he's just being a real <sighs> dick to her. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, so like on that's the a- scale of abuse that Carrie has suffered, it's not huge, but. Like, does he deserve to die for it? I don't know. Yeah, that's that's uh, Sydney Lassick, who uh, who was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I remember, you know, and uh, which is funny because the very early King movies, like, you know, has him and of course Jack Nicholson in The Shining. You know that it seems oh, like yeah. Cuckoo's Nest ended up being a little bit of a of a hotbed for future Stephen King talent. Has um, Doris done a King movie? He seemed Kingy. Oh, he was in Gra- Graveyard Shift, wasn't he? Right. I know Christopher Lloyd was in Quicksilver Highway, which is the which has a King story in it. You know who I was delighted to see in Carrie that I had totally forgotten when it was Edie McClurg. Love oh, yeah. Edie McClurg. Oh yeah. Anytime she shows up, I'm immediately happy. She doesn't have much mm-hmm. to do here, but just seeing Edie McClurg puts me in a good mood. She's- yeah. If you, if you don't recognize the name, uh, constant listener, that that is the uh, Rooney's secretary and Ferris Bueller. She's the uh, rental car lady and uh, trains. Uh, Planes, yes. trains. It has that like standout scene with Steve Martin. You're fucked. Yeah, you're <laughs> fucked. So good. Oh man. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I want to, there's one thing I want to loop back around to that we sort of glanced over a minute ago was the idea that how unusual it was for, for uh, Piper Laurie and Sissy Spakes to be nominated and mm. both nominated. And also the, the lack of attention that uh, horror gets from award mm-hmm. shows. And I'm, I'm curious what your, what your take on that is, uh, Karin, that, that horror doesn't really get its, it's yeah, it's um it's funny because I I struggle with the notion of sort of awards generally. Mm-hmm. Um right. and, and maybe that's because I don't get enough of them, but um <laughs> but, but I, I ultimately think it's because I feel like when official culture is defined by these awards, you can you you know, you can say you you can say words like Oscars so white, and then you can also say words like Oscars so bland, you know, like you just want to see really exciting work make its way into that part of the conversation about greatness. And some of our greatest achievements in cinema are horror films. Um, and, and, and certainly the most culturally meaningful and, and still relevant, statements are horror films. And so that's always been my love of horror is, is that they actually have something to say that remains true decade to decade. And I don't know if you can say the same for quite a few movies that just sort of tell very polite stories about, you know, progress in a a broken person or, 
you know, a historical sort of epic or whatever, whatever it is. I, I, I'm just not as drawn generally, generally to those movies. I don't want to make blanket statements, but so to me, the idea that, that Sissy, Spacek and Piper Laurie were both recognized for this film is actually kind of both hopeful and a a mind blowing window (laughs) into that time, because I, I can't imagine, I mean, that that's like, a similar equivalent to me would be like Nick Cage and Andrea Riesborough getting nominated for Mandy, you know, <laughs> right, like right. I, I just feel kind of like that should happen, but it won't. And so. Or Tony Collette getting it for hereditary. Or yeah, something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just that, that part of what, um, what we're missing when we don't acknowledge these movies is the, the window into our actual soul. I mean, like, I feel like horror films are the window into our deepest, most authentic anxieties and dreamscapes and nightmare fantasies. And when we don't acknowledge that, it's sort of like, it's sort of like we're in this kind of meta repression, suppression of our most interesting ideas and dialogues. Do you know what I mean? Like, and so I get really, really bummed by how horror movies are denied. They're denied the cultural conversation when they don't get nominated for these kinds of awards. But then at the same time, I'm, I'm sort of recognizing that that's what makes them, what, what makes horror movies and, and genre generally, whether you call it action or pulp or, sci-fi launch or yeah whatever we call it it's like it's it's a kind of willingness to be a cultural outlier and a willingness to sort of thumb your nose at at this idea of the dominant culture which i don't even like defining a dominant culture because i feel like that assigns it a label that we could believe is true and i don't even believe that it's true but it's just that thing of like um i mean now i've got to just like hold my head high thinking, well, Carrie got some attention, you know, (laughs) it it wasn't just silence of the lambs and it wasn't just the exorcist. That's so inspiring actually to me. And I think, you know, look, parasite is a kind of horror film. And I remember seeing that film last year at Telluride and I walked out of the theater and I said, I just feel in my bones that that movie is going to win best picture. Oh, really? And I called it? <laughs> yes, I did. And I remember so many people when I would say that to them, they were like, yeah, right. You know, like, it, <laughs> and, and even I, while, while the whole award season sort of um, insanity was happening, I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I was wrong. And once again, I'm just, you know, this hopefulness is the equivalent of me getting to a theater an hour in advance to buy tickets to some obscure six hour documentary that I think everyone is going to go see. Um, and in fact, no, I'm, it's me and three other people. But, but in this case, I really had this sense that like the world was ready to acknowledge something about what this movie was saying. And maybe we're going to get there again with just something that's even more strictly living in the horror space. Um, I welcome that. I think that would be so awesome. That would be something to see. The, yeah. the, the Parasite win was a, such a shock. We we have like a little Oscars get together every year and we watch it and just, you know, basically shit talk the Oscars. Because, yes, exactly. You, you know, you just kind of snark at it and eat. Uh, 
appetizers and Mm -hmm. you know as the night went on and parasite kept racking them up it was like the tension in the room kept building yeah that was that was maybe the most exciting oscars i've seen in 10 15 years at least just like yep i absolutely did not think that would happen totally and and yet the least viewed um in sheer sheer viewership numbers and so that's that's the conundrum to kind of grapple with is um what we it's like to me wow the oscars got it right this time and yet they weren't rewarded with eyeballs they weren't rewarded they weren't rewarded for it but i i just think that's going to be an interesting ongoing conversation because a film like parasite is going to stand the test of time and people are going to keep talking about it the way we still talk about carrie and it's because some really uncomfortable sort of icky truth is getting probed and pushed at. And, you know, I don't know if we really like that as a culture, but it definitely needs to happen. Yeah. Uh, Karin, can I ask you something about uh, your work in relation to Carrie? Sure. Yeah, I couldn't help but, you know, thinking of this chat we were about to have, um, thinking about um, Jennifer's body. When you approach that, uh, is that, that covers some similar ground as Carrie in terms of, yeah. You know, there's kind of mean girl horror, right? There's lots yeah. of mean girls in that in that thing, and you you have you know kind of a complex, um, you know, uh, you know, young woman at the forefront of it, you know, with dealing with powers that you know mm-hmm. she can use for for good or evil or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like and how she chooses to use them. Was was your love of Carrie? Did that at all inform you uh, when you oh, were approaching I mean, that project? I, it's I have to say because I didn't want I. It, I was looking at movies that were actually quite a bit, quite a bit in a different family from Carrie in preparation for Jennifer's body. Um, I was looking at much stricter horror comedy sort of mashups. And so it was like American werewolf in London and, and um, evil dead and evil dead Two And like those kind of movies. And so it's, it, it's almost, I have to say, uh, and I, I'll just go live with it. It's almost embarrassing how much Carrie clearly influenced me. <laughs> and, and I didn't even realize it because there's just so much in Carrie that is, and I say this with, with genuine like awe and reverence, just so much that is like foundational to me. And like I, seeing the prom again and seeing the fire that, that is surrounding Carrie, I was just like, oh my God, that's such a part of the Melody Lane fire scene in Jennifer's body. And yeah. and even, yeah. even just the idea of people being women drenched in blood and you don't know if it's their own blood or the blood of others, um, that kind of visual question mark, I think all starts with Carrie. And so... I mean, it's, it's kind of almost, it's almost humiliating to realize that I am, I I am such a product of my influences and such a product of the art I, I revere because um, I don't think I would have recognized how much Carrie influenced Jennifer's body until seeing it again this week and, and being just reminded again of, of if the two movies share anything, I think it's this interest in, in the transgressive female and, and this interest in attempting to understand 
the values and the true crisis of female power? Like, what does it mean to have female power? Does it ultimately mean we misuse it the way everybody else does? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So right. like that that's kind of what Carrie brought up for me was like, that question and and realizing that that question is still super interesting to me as a filmmaker. I don't think it's I, I don't think it's um humiliating. You know, I, I, well, Embar- well, embarrassing maybe, but not well, humiliating. Well, I'll, I'll, I think that as creatives, you know, um, mm-hmm. we're we're writers, and you're you're a, a filmmaker. Um, I think this is also probably true of musicians and stand-up comics, mm-hmm. and painters, and whatever. You know, um, things that are foundational are going to inform your your DNA, whether you realize it or not. You know, there's yes. there's things I say just in casual conversation that are like lines I've picked up from movies or something, or mm-hmm. you know, some, or, or you know, uh, a particular turn of phrase while writing something. And um, you know, I've rec- I've recognized it myself a few times, but. Um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't interpret it as embarrassing. It's just, it's almost like an Easter egg for yourself. You know what I mean? Like, Oh yeah. Fletch. That's why I just said that, you know, like that, <laughs> right. that, that sort of thing. You know, it's, um, it's funny you mentioned that Scott, because there's something that I do uh, where I'm, no matter if I'm writing, you know, like a, a blog post or, you know, if I'm writing an email or a story, I, I do something that I think I'm, I now know I picked up from King just reading King. And that's whenever I have an aside, but it's in the middle of a sentence. I don't do like a comma and then that, and then another comma or a dash and then a dash. You know what I mean? I do. I put it in in parentheses and, and that's just what feels natural to me. And I didn't realize it probably until I'd been doing this for well over a decade when I was rereading some King stuff where I'm like, Oh, this is where I got it. This is exactly how he'll tell like a, a two sentence aside within the middle of a sentence in that way. Or sometimes, and it's sometimes a full on paragraph break just for the aside. Yeah. You know, he's, he's big on that. Well, I, I mean, I, and I think that there's something, it's true that like, it's worth looking to what is inspiring about these, like these foundational, you know, literary or cinematic memories that we have. And, and that really was brought home to me by looking at just the, the cast and crew of, of Carrie. And I was really curious to look at what else, um, Mario Tosi had shot, who 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 was the cinematographer mm-hmm. for Carrie, and it's such a distinctive look, and it's like so. I mean, you know, you could you could say it defines a, a, an era of filmmaking, and yet when you look at his his resume, there's quite a few movies you've never heard of, tons and tons of TV movies, and in many respects, Carrie is one of his crowning achievements, and yet. Before Carrie, he did a movie, he shot a TV movie called Buster and Billy that was this like Jan Michael Vincent, um, just crazy movie uh, that has something very similar to Carrie in that there's an outcast girl character that Jan Michael Vincent's um, character falls in love with. And they have this sort of forbidden, forbidden high school romance that ends so shockingly, so tragically, so violently. And for a TV movie, I remember it being seared into my brain as a kid, like just seared. And to think that he had shot that movie as well, and that they were both so significant to me, it is kind of this interesting thing where you realize that there's like threads of influence that all do kind of make some sense when you get down to it. Like there's, um, 
you know, when you look at what else Pino Donaggio, the composer had done, it's like, there's some really important films there that he was a part of for me. And it, it, so it's just kind of this interesting thing to realize that like aesthetics managed to sort of find other like aesthetics in some mm-hmm. way. And, and even though it's not quite definable, you know, this is a composer versus a cinematographer versus a writer versus a, um, a director, the art forms are different. And yet something about the, the values of the aesthetics are the same, which I think is really cool to kind of yeah, totally. dig into, you know? I was, cu- I was, I was curious to see that this wasn't nominated for uh, like a best adapted mm. screenplay mm. Uh, award. And it got me wondering what else uh, uh, this writer had done. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I believe I it or not, <laughs> do you know what I'm about to say? Oh yeah. Uh, he wrote the script for the Tommy knockers, which I just, mm. I just watched last night and was just, Oh, I was mortified by this, this thing. He, he it is, is, um, he, it is he not also, good. He also did the it miniseries and he wrote, yep. um, uh, right after this or not right after within a few years of this, he wrote the feature adaptation of ghost story, the Peter Straub book. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, which is, not the mo- I mean, it's it, it's not a bad movie, um, but it's definitely not a very memorable film, and at least not in the way that that Carrie is. You know, it's not a striking movie. It's kind of a more melancholic thing. But yeah, that's it's a varied career. You know, where he he yeah. like hits it out of the park here with his giant hit, and then uh, disappears, and then writes a, a couple of uh, you know iffy not <laughs> not, not as successful. Yeah, right. right. Well, to be fair to him on. Tommy Knockers. He wasn't exactly working with uh, <laughs> the best material. The raw materials weren't top shelf. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like that'll be a fun it's... episode when we get to that one. Holy crap! <laughs> uh, um, I'm gonna, but... I'm gonna, I'm gonna berate our guest on that episode for picking <laughs> that, making me watch all of that again. Well, we're we're running we're running about an hour ten now, so I think we should probably wrap this up. Uh, do you guys want to hear one more Stephen King related Carrie story before we go? Yes, for sure. Yeah, I'd like if you just say, nah, not interested. All right. So this, he, he once told a story about the very first time he saw one of his books in the wild and it was Carrie. This is the, as an author, just being out and about seeing somebody reading, reading your book. Uh, and it was a, a paperback of Carrie. Like I said, the hardcover wasn't a very widely distributed and, and published book. Um, so he said he was on an airplane, um, and he was drunk as a skunk because he is terrified of flying. Stephen King hates flying. And so he got drunk to, you know, kind of get over the turbulence and he noticed some, uh, a woman in first class was reading the paperback. And so he decided, you know, in his, uh, you know, drunken confidence, you know, he was going to go up and be like, Hey, you know, that's my book. You know, it's like, Hey, do you want me to sign that for you? That kind of thing. So he, he gets up, he goes to the bathroom at the front of the plane. And when he gets out of the bathroom, he strikes up conversation with this woman and says, Oh, how do you like that book? And she, you know, kind of looked up at him and just said, I think it's shitty. (laughs) <laughs> and so he said okay i won't get that one and then went back to a seat so, so that, that is the, the very first time stephen king uh saw, <laughs> saw somebody reading one of his books in public and uh, that amazing. that is what happened so that's well, karen you have a you have a very or karen excuse me i keep doing that um you have a very uh exciting project that you're working on now i assume you can't tell us much about it but you're doing dracula for for blumhouse um mm-hmm what can yep. you tell us about it? Uh, just that it's a fairly um, 
a fairly faithful adaptation of Bram Stoker's novel. That's what I will say. <laughs> so, so lots okay. of journal writing? Well, yeah, no, it's not so much that, but it is using the, the, the idea of, um, I think, something that gets overlooked in, in Dracula's, uh, the, the adaptations of Dracula in the past is, is the, um, the idea of multiple voices. And, and um, in fact, the book is um, filled with different points yeah. of view. And the one point of view we don't get, get access to um, and all most adaptations give access to is Dracula himself. And, um, so I would just say in some respect, um, this is about, this is, uh, going to be an adaptation called Dracula, but it's, um, perhaps not the same kind of romantic hero that we've, we've seen in the past, um, That's in, cool. pa- in past interpretations of Dracula. Nice. It sounds exciting. Man. The day Thanks. we, the day that news broke was we went ape shit behind the scenes. Because <laughs> like none of us are really that into vampires anymore. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. We all loved uh, what Lee did on Invisible Man, and then totally, and we loved uh, Karin's work. And then it, like the head, you know, it was like, uh oh, they're doing another Dracula, and it was like, oh shit, another Dracula. It's like, but the good news is, <laughs> summer, like, what? Uh, oh, we were awesome. so hyped, yeah. So That's we're, uh, I'm sure you're going to do something interesting with it. And we, uh, we can't wait to see it. And uh, thank you again so much for, for taking the time to talk to us today. This was an excellent episode. Thank you. It was a real pleasure. And um, I'm, it was so nice to be able to revisit this basically masterpiece of a film. So thank you for that opportunity. And that was our episode with Karen. She was uh, so good, wasn't One she, Scott? That is, um, I don't want to be disrespectful to our other guests. And we certainly don't want to play favorites here at the KingCast, but that episode is possibly my favorite one that we've done. Like Karen knocked me back on my heels a couple times during that conversation. She is, she is fucking awesome. Yep. And uh, next week's episode is, uh, is pretty good too, actually. Um, we, <laughs> yes. We, we, yeah. We got a, a nice one, two punch for you guys. Uh, this uh, we're going to, we, we like to kind of keep the guests a secret until, until right before, uh, mm-hmm. but we can tell you that we, will be uh, bedridden uh, and being looked after by a psychotic ex-nurse next week. That's right. It's from a Buick 8. That's right. Lysy story coming next. No, uh, we are Wait, doing neither misery. of those are right. Neither of them. Right. <laughs> We're doing misery next week. Misery. I and am. Ex- we- oh, I am so excited to talk about this one, uh, particularly as as this book, this this movie uh, relates to fandom. And we are going to get into a fucking conversation about that. Yep. And uh, and our guest has his own share of number one fans <laughs> and uh, is very open. He, with has a, those he knows about fandom a little bit. This guy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. No. So stay tuned for that. And we'll see you next week. It's Andy Dick. It's not Andy Dick. Bye.